Welcome to the Healing School Podcast. This is a place where you can get built up in the Word of God concerning healing. This is a place of truth and bold faith in the Word of God. We encourage you to get your Bible and some notepaper. Write down what the Lord is speaking to you. This is a place for both receiving and ministering healing. The stronger your faith gets in this area, the more effective you will be for the kingdom of our God. Hold fast to the scriptures. The truth of the scripture never changes and it never gets old. These are episodes you can feed on time and time again. Please share our podcasts with other people. Most always, someone either needs healing or knows someone who does. God bless you and heal you as you hear his word. morning I'm sitting there and I'm like weepy and I'm like get fired up but that's what I got so I know you've been sitting there for you know close to an hour with your just in the presence but what I want you to do right now you know I mean I love the Lord I know you do love the word and you know Romans 10 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing the word of God You know, not the word of Oprah, not Dr. Phil, not CNN, not your neighbor, not, you know, uh, it comes from God. So what I'd like you to do is just shut your eyes for a moment. Don't go to sleep on me, but shut your eyes. And (laughs) I want to get you primed and fired up because this is a little different message, I think. But just shut your eyes and just soak this in. Open your spiritual ears. We are mighty men and women of God here this morning, right now. When you came in, you brought the spirit of the living God with you. We are mountain movers. We are world changers and earth shakers because the word of God lives in us and the word of God has power. We hold the key. Shut your eyes. Shut your eyes. Shut your eyes. I just want you to soak. Just listen. Shut your eyes, Joyce. (laughs) We hold the key to change ourselves, you know, speak to our bodies. We have the key by the word to change situations, relationships, things in the world, our finances, our minds, and so on, speaking the word to them. The same spirit that created the world lives inside of us. Think of that. When you go out at night and you look at the moon and the stars and the heavens, that spirit, God Almighty, that created that lives in you. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. Philippians 4.13 says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Romans 8.28 says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against us will prosper, and every tongue that rises against us in judgment, you shall condemn, that is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It does not return void. It accomplishes where I send it. To accom- what I send it to accomplish, and it prospers the thing whereunto I send it. We're created in his image. We carry his glory, his might, his power, his love, his mercy, his grace. 
We are the conduits and the pipelines for all that he blesses us with to give it to others, to flow it out to others. His spirit lives in us and will never, 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 never leave us. We can enter the throne room of God Almighty at any time, no appointment needed, and we can commune with him every moment of every day if we so desire. Oh, Joshua 1.3 says, everywhere we tread on our feet, we should be claiming for his kingdom. You walk into the store, you walk into a Walmart, you should be claiming it for the kingdom, and God will bring somebody for you to pray with, to witness to, just to bless. You watch it happen. 2 Peter 1.3 says, He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by glory and virtue. All things leaves nothing out. And Acts 10.38 says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And you could put your name in there. He anointed Bill of Mesa. He anointed Chrissy of, of Gilbert. And wherever else, you know, it, it is that you live. But how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Matthew 15, 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all. And I just saw over with, with Easter a movie about Jesus and it showed him walking down this hillside and it brought me to tears because it made that scripture come alive. There were just hundreds of people coming towards him and I thought, Lord, that's how it was and you healed them all. You healed them all. Luke 16, 17 and 18 says, go unto all the world and put your name in there. And preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Okay, you can open your eyes. So I hope you're a little fired up by that because that's who you are sitting here this morning, no matter what you got up with, no matter how you felt, no matter what you walked in with, that's who you are. I mean, we are so blessed to have his spirit 24-7, you know, go into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We can do that at any time. I don't know about you. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm so done living a mediocre life. I want more. I want more, and I think all of you do too, or you wouldn't be here. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So what Holy Spirit led me to do was to go to the Old Testament and to encourage you that we have the Spirit 24-7, and the saints in the Old Testament great deeds and things were done by them and they only had the spirit in part when God would put it on them to do a certain thing and the wonderful things that they did it's amazing and I love the Old Testament I know a lot of people don't but I love the Old Testament and these stories that are told so that was what he gave me and it's not necessarily what I'm going to be telling you that they were healing 
but just to show you that in part they had the spirit and what we've got 24-7 that I want to do some exploits I want to be what God wants me to be I don't want to you know lose a day without doing something for him or I don't want to end the race and say yeah I didn't do that or what you know I just I want to do it I want to do it for him so what I'm going to be talking about are the faith builders of old and again they got his spirit when they most needed it and it was always for God's glory but it would come upon them for a certain action deed or a certain time and then it would lift from them I mean, look at us. We have it all the time. Holy Spirit is in us all the time. So what I was led to study was uh, the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And when Judges starts, it tells that Joshua is like, uh, you know, he's in his last days. He lives till he's 110. And in Judges 2.10, it says, that entire generation passed away, the generation that came out of the desert and so forth and the wandering. And it says, after them, a generation who did not know the Lord or the deeds that he had done for Israel. Isn't that sad? But it's, it's, it makes me think of today, like the generations today that just don't know the Lord. And it said that this was a pattern. People, the, the Israelites would fall away from the Lord you know, come under oppression, cry out to the Lord. The Lord would come in and raise someone up, bring them out into victory, and then pretty soon they'd go back into that old pattern. I mean, pretty much like us. We're, we're no different, really. So Holy Spirit gave me a few people to just highlight that the Spirit came on, and it was in uh, most of these, as I said, are in Judges. And the first one I want to talk about was after Joshua passed away. His is actually his son-in-law. It was Caleb's nephew and son-in-law, Othniel. Now, Israel was being oppressed, it says, by uh, a king of Mesopotamia for eight years. And God raised up this man by the name of Othniel. Again, he was Caleb's nephew and son-in-law. And it says in Judges 3.10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. And the Lord gave him this big, long name of a king, uh, I'm not even going to attempt it, into his hands, and the land had peace for 40 years, and then Othniel died. And then after that 40 years, and he passed away, the children of Israel once more did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping Baal and Asherah, which we know were, you know, foreign gods. So that's the first example that God raised up this man, Othniel. The next one that I want to talk about, and some of these I just love, their names and the stories. E and I, I had to Google their names, like, how am I saying these names? And you get the names that it'll, it'll pronounce it for you. And I listened to them and listened to them. So this is Ehud. And it says that uh, after Othniel, then came Ehud. And the king of Eglon of Moab came against Israel for 18 years. And Israel cried out, and they raised up Ehud. He was a Benjamite who was left-handed. Got any left-handers in here? Any, just me? Just me, okay. So I thought, yes, lefty. And so tribute was being paid to this king, Eglon, and Ehud delivered it personally this time. 
And it said, being left-handed, he strapped a sword onto, uh, it said it was a cubit long, so I looked that up, and it's like a foot and a half sword, so not something huge, but some little, you know, sword he could stick him with. And being left-handed, he put it on his right thigh so that when he needed it, he could just grab it. And I assume if you're right-handed, you put it on your left thigh and grab it that way. So he delivers the tribute to King Eglon of Moab. And then he, he tells him that he has a secret message for him. And so the king sends everybody away, goes up to his you know, private chambers, and shuts the door. And it says, Ehud approached him and went to whisper whatever it was he was going to tell him, but he drew the sword and you know, plunged it in to the king. And it says the king was so fat that the sword went clear up to the hilt and got basically stuck. And I read different versions, and some of them are like, you know, his bowels came out, this and that, but he just really got it stuck in there, and he could not remove it because the fat just closed around the sword. So it was one fat man, one fat king. So Ehud, you know, kills the king and leaves. And then he, he goes up to a mountain and, you know, blows a, um, not a trumpet, he blows the, the horn, the um, shofar, and, you know, rallies the troops and tells them that this king is dead and they've got to now go fight. Well, in the meantime, the king, his servants, go to check on him and the door is locked and they think, oh, well, he's doing his private duty, is what it said in one translation I had. And so they went away. They came back a few hours later and thought, hmm, door's still locked. King is, you know, what's going on? And they open the door and find him, you know, slain. So then they send troops out. But, of course, this uh, Ehud has already had time to gather the Israelites together. And it said that uh, they struck down about 10,000 strong and valorous Moabite men. And then Israel had peace for 80 years. And the spirit of God had come upon this Ehud. And he rallied the troops and they beat these Moabite men. And I was reading the Moabites were some very fierce fighters, very fierce fighters. And so, you know, God just put that spirit on him, rallied the troops, and then he was able to kill this king to begin with. And then, you know, rallied the troops and beat the Moabites. And it says they had peace for 80 years. This is just to build your faith that this is Old Testament and this is where the Spirit of God would come upon these people for these special times and what they accomplished. And we have them with us 24-7. The next one, and some of these, when, when you read Judges, it's just little blips, little blips about the people. The next one is Shamgar. And after Ehud was Shamgar, son of Anath. And I love that, too. I was reading, like, God includes such detail. He was the son of Anoth. We don't know who Anoth was, but I looked him up, and it was like he was Shamgar's father. So it didn't tell me a whole lot. But, I mean, it was important enough that God put that in there. And it says with Shamgar, now, they'd had peace for 80 years, and then 
they started, the Israelites would go back to this pattern of worshiping foreign gods, falling away from God, you know, sound like, like modern days. And it says, the spirit of God came upon him, meaning Shamgar, and he struck down 600 Philistine men with an ox goad. So, of course, I looked up ox goad. Well, it's a stick, and it's got a pointy end. It's a wooden stick with a pointy end. And you would, you know, make your oxen, if they kind of slowed down, you poke them with it. And I thought, oh, I grew up in the country, and my grandfather had a dairy farm. And he would walk out in the pastures in the evening, and he always said this, Shabbat, 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 and for whatever reason, I don't know what it meant, the cows would come to him. And he always had a stick like this because you'd get the couple cows that would lead all of them back to the barn. And if they slowed down, the whole group slowed down. So he would take his stick, and not meanly or anything, but just like, come on, bossy, you know, and prod it a little bit. So that was an ox goad. This man, I mean, understand this. He killed 600 Philistine men who you know were, were warriors with an ox goad, a wooden stick, sharpened to a point at the end, 600, because the Spirit of God came on him for that time. 600 men he killed. And I'm just thinking to myself what that must have looked like, but, you know, uh, again, he had the Spirit of God for that purpose at that time. You know? Isn't that wild, though? An ox goad. Ox goad. Now, the next one, it's two women. <laughs> Deborah and Jael. Now, Deborah was a judge at this time in Judges. And there was a war, it said, between King Jabin of Canaan and Israel. And a man by the name of Barak was in charge of the Israelite. He was the commander of the army. And he came to Deborah and said, you know, about going to, to war against Canaan, but I'll only do it if you come with me. And so Deborah goes with him and she told him but you know a woman's going to get the glory for this battle and so 20 years um, this king had oppressed Israel you see this pattern again and again you know they draw close to God they fall away they have, well, they have peace for so many years and they fall away and then they cry out and God sends you know another judge someone else that he puts the spirit on for this for such a time as this well, the commander of the army for this King Jabin of Canaan was Sisera. And I guess he was quite a fighter, and he had iron chariots, which the Israelites did not have. And what I was reading, that during this time, the Israelites didn't have many weapons. They had more farming equipment and that kind of thing, because being oppressed, the enemies would take away their weapons. I mean, maybe they made some on the sly or hid some or what have you, but the weapons were far and few between. So this all this just makes it more amazing. So Sisera is in these iron chariots and so forth, leading his troops, and Deborah said to Barak that she would go with him and prayed and so forth, and God came down in power, and the Israelites routed all of these troops. And it ends up that Sisera is in his chariot and sees that all of his troops are, are, are gone. So he jumps out of the chariot and starts running. And he comes to a tent 
and um, the tent is, it said, Heber, the Kenite, and that was, it said, the same tribe as Moses' father-in-law had been a Kenite, and they were nomadic and had sheep and camels and, you know, so forth, goats. And it says that Sisera and this Heber were on good terms, and so Heber isn't there at the time, but his wife, Jael, is, and she's standing outside the tent, and she sees this Sisera, this mighty warrior, running towards her, and she tells him, you know, come in, come in to my tent, and so he does. And you get the description of the whole thing, Judges chapter 4. And she says, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned in, and he's exhausted from the battle and from running. So he lies on the floor, and it says that she covers him up. And he says, you know, hide me, hide me. But could I have a drink of water? I'm so thirsty. Well, she was smart because she gave him warm milk. And I don't know if you've ever had warm milk. I remember as a kid, my mother would give my sister and I, you know, if we were having issues like, oh, I don't want to go to bed, I'm not tired, and she'd be like, drink this, and it was warm milk. And it did the trick. It would make you a little sleepy and just relax. Well, JL gives Sisera warm milk out of this skin, you know. So he drinks that, he lays down, she covers him up, and he went sound asleep. And then what does she do? She takes a tent peg, which I even looked up tent pegs. I mean, I've had tents in the past, and ours, the, you know, the pegs aren't real big or anything, but in this day and age, they were usually wooden or iron, and they were about six inches long, if not more, and they came to a point, and she, he was sleeping soundly, and she put the tent peg on his temple, and obviously he must have been on his side, probably all curled up comfy, thinking he's safe, and she takes a mallet and she pounds it down through him, and it says it went clear through. I mean, can you imagine? And I think, okay, and she became the hero. I mean, she, instead of Barack, and when Deborah says, you know, okay, um, you know, I'll go with you, but a woman's going to get the glory, and it ended up that this JL gets the glory for killing this mighty, you know, uh, opponent, you know, this general, whatever he was. And I thought, I have helped my husband build some things. Now, we've never had big uh, tent pegs like that, but I remember he had these big metal, he was making some kind of a fence, I don't even remember, but we had these big metal, they weren't even a nail, but um, they were long, they were probably about three inches long, and had a real big round head on them, and I had this big mallet, and he's like, you know, okay, hit it. I mean, I kept missing, and I'm like, you know what I mean? And this woman, she had God's spirit on her to hit that and just right through down into his head and killed him. And she became, you know, she became the hero. And it says, after that, the children of Israel had peace for 40 years. So you see this pattern. They'd have peace. They'd draw close to God again. You know, they'd cry out. God would be with one of them to just help and overcome the enemy. 
but then they would start sliding back into idolatry and getting away from him. It was all throughout, you know, judges in particular. The next person we're going to look at is Gideon. And we've all heard of Gideon. And this is where Midian was oppressing Israel, ruining their crops. And I was reading that um, they were so oppressed, the Midianites would come in and burn crops and do everything they could to keep the Israelites just so under their power, you know, hungry and just doing whatever they told them to do because they were, they were just so oppressive. So here we've got Gideon, who's um, threshing wheat in a wine press, and he's, he's hiding, and he's doing this, hiding. And it says, the angel of the Lord visited him. And typically when you see angel of the Lord, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The angel of the Lord visits him and tells him, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, you know, me? He's hiding out in a, in a wine press, grinding grain, and trying to eke out a little bit of grain for the family, and he's like the meekest of all the sons, and he's like, you know, me? And I know you've heard the story, but Gideon, you know, the Lord keeps speaking to him, and mighty man, and you're gonna, you know, you're the deliverer, and so forth of Israel, and I need a sign. And so he takes fleece from a lamb, I assume, or sheep, and he says to the Lord, you know, I'll put it on the threshing floor. And the first time he says, if the fleece is wet and the floor is dry, then I'll know it's you and that I'm really supposed to do this. And sure enough, that's what happens. The next morning, the fleece is so wet, it said that he wrung the water out, but everywhere around it was dry. Well, it's like he's, you know, excuse me, but I need another sign. And this time it was have the wool, the fleece dry, and the area all around wet, and that's exactly what happened. So at that point, he realized, this is the Lord, and, you know, okay. Because he kept saying, you know, you mighty man, and he wanted to use him, and Gideon was just, just so afraid, so afraid. And so Gideon gathered troops together. It said, uh, he gathered 32,000 men. He put the call out, like across Israel. 32,000 men came to fight um, the, the Midianites that were oppressing them. And then God told him, he said, that's, that's too many. So he took them down to a stream. And that, that stream and that, it's like there's a big pole. It's still there today in Israel. And I saw pictures of it, and they have it, like, fenced off, but you can go down there. There's a cave, and there's this fresh water, you know, stream that comes down there. That's where God told Gideon, these 32,000 men are way too many, and God wanted to get the glory, not these, you know, these Israelites. So he says, take them down to the water. Or first, first excuse me, he says, um, send home those that are anxious and afraid. And out of the 32,000, 22,000 leave. So he's left with 10,000 men. And of that 10,000, the Lord still thought, that's, that's too many. You know, I want to get the glory out of this. 
So he told Gideon to take him down to this pool, and as I said, I've seen pictures of it and so forth, and just, you know, nothing spectacular, but this pool of water and a stream that comes down, and there's a cave and so forth. And God told him that out of these 10,000 men, whoever would, like, lap like a dog, those were the men to pick. And so there were men, it said, that knelt down, and they would, like, just you know, actually lap the water and keep looking around, well, that's not what God wanted. So then there would be men that would come down and get the water in their hand and, you know, lap it like a dog. Those were the men that God said, choose them. So it went from 10,000 to 300. To 300. So the story of, of Gideon, you know, he is sent down into the enemy camp, and he overhears these two uh, enemy men talking, and they're saying that, you know, the one had a dream, and, and the dream is prophetic, that basically that, you know, Israel's going to win the battle, and that really encouraged Gideon. So he goes back, he takes, I think it was like his armor bearer or something with him, so he goes back, and now he, he's, okay, he's, he's, he's got it, he understands, you know, God's with him. So it said the Midianite troops were like locusts, so many, and Gideon's got 300 men. So what God tells them to do, divide the 300 into three groups, and they each had a torch and some type of a jar that I guess they kept it burning in. I'm not quite sure, but they had the jar. And so these 300 men surrounded these what appeared to be thousands of enemy troops, and when Gideon gave the word, they were to smash the jars, hold their, you know, um, torches up and say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the men, all of these men in the camp panicked. We know that was, you know, the Lord just put that fear in them. And it said, the Lord turned every man's sword against his fellow man throughout the camp. And we see that a lot happening that, you know, I think that's wild because maybe two minutes before you're talking to Joe, your best friend, and you got your swords ready, and then after a couple minutes, you're, you know, you're stabbing each other, but it was the Lord, just whatever he did to their spirits to just come against each other, kill each other, made it easy for Gideon. And then Gideon had kind of a, a sad ending in that he ended up... Um, getting into some idolatry in his later life in that um, he, he, he took the sword and he took other uh, sacred, you know, articles and kind of made them like this special little uh, museum for Gideon, so to speak, and he just kind of got off track in the end. But, I mean, God used him at this time for this purpose. And again... The Spirit of the Lord came on him. And I think, we have the Spirit all the time. And, you know, we'll get a little nervous about something or fearful if we're asked to do something. And it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, these people, what they did, and they only had the Spirit, like, for that certain time in that certain measure. And then the next one we're going to look at is Jephthah. And he was a mighty man of valor. He was also the son of a prostitute. 
and it said that his father had many sons who didn't like him and drove him away. And they felt that he should have no part, you know, of their inheritance. He was a prostitute's son that his father, you know, happened to have. So they, they drove him away until the elders needed him to help fight was an Ammonite king. And Judges 11.29 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and he asked the Lord to give him the victory, and the Lord did. Now, right before this, Jephthah did something kind of stupid, though. He, he asked the Lord to help him, and the Lord certainly did. You know, he won the battle. But right before this, he makes a vow to the Lord. If you give me the victory that when I get home, whoever comes out of the home, my door at my home first, I will give you as a sacrifice. And it's like, what a stupid thing, huh, you'd think. Because maybe he was thinking his dog's going to come out or something or his cat or whatever. But who comes out but his daughter, his only daughter? He wins the battle, and she comes out with a tambourine, it says, and she's celebrating, and, you know, Father, you're home, and the victory, and, and he knows that he can't go back on his vow, and that what he said was, whoever came out of the door, you know, Lord, you know, I give them to you, which, again, makes you think, don't make some rash vows that you, you know, like this, because he had no idea, I, I assume, that his daughter. He didn't think his daughter was going to come out first, which leads me then to think, well, who did he think was going to come out first? You know, his wife, maybe? Or did he have a mother-in-law? Or You know what I mean? You don't know who was there, but nonetheless, his daughter, who he dearly loved, came out. And I've read a couple commentaries that said, um, according to the word, she asked her father, if she could go for a couple months with like her maidens and uh, just basically celebrate, you know, life. And he gives her permission. And one commentary I read said that, yes, when she came back, you know, she had to be sacrificed. Then another commentary I read said, well, she, she went to basically a convent. That's not what the word says, you know. So it, it appears that she really did have to be sacrificed because that's the, the, it was a stupid vow. So again, it's like don't make stupid vows or rash vows to the Lord, even this day. You know, just watch your words, what you're saying. But in the moment, I don't know why he, he said that or did that, but the spirit had come on him and he asked the Lord for the victory, and he got the victory, but then he makes that stupid, you know, remark, and it ended up costing him his dearly beloved daughter. So, just saying, be careful what you say. You know. Now, the next one, very familiar for you, is Samson. And we know that before Samson was born, the angel of the Lord, meaning Jesus, visited his parents and promised them a son. And he actually, it says, the angel of the Lord actually spoke to Samson's, or excuse me, Samson's yeah, mother first, and then she told her husband about it, and then uh, they wanted to make, you know, some type of a, 
a meal or something, and then the angel came back and, and told the father also that um, he was the son, she would be pregnant with the son, and they had been waiting to, to have a child, and he was to be raised a Nazarite from the womb, meaning no strong drink and no razor to touch his head, and that he would begin to save the Israelites from the Philistines. Well, we know the story. Samson grew, and Samson became quite the womanizer, unfortunately, and he, he, he seemed to be drawn to the Philistine women. And I read one commentary that said that this was also part of God's plan that to get vengeance on the Philistines, to have this. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you just you read these different commentaries, you just kind of got to really just read them and like, okay, because the word doesn't say that. But it, it shows that time after time, Samson goes for the wrong women and he has this anointing of God and this power but he just is off track so often these women were his downfall and um, he tells his parents that there's a woman in a town uh, of Timnah and it's Philistine and that there's a woman there he wants and of course they try to talk him out of it no the Lord has somebody and he'd know I want this woman so they go down to the town first, and then Samson's on his way, and it's the famous story of when he meets a lion. And it says he just, you know, it's different accounts I've read. He ripped the lion in two. He pulled its mouth back. He, you know, whatever. Anyway, he fought it with his bare hands, and he killed this lion. And I didn't really see if it was, you know, a grown lion, a, a, any, what, any kind of lion I would... I would think would be quite the, the thing to kill with your bare hands. And that's what it says Samson did. And what would happen is the power of the Lord would come upon him. And he had this strength, extraordinary strength. And it was to be used, you know, for his people. But he kept using it for these other things that he got himself into, it seems like. And uh, it's I read one one commentary and it said he tore the lion in two as one might tear a young goat in two and I thought I've never torn a young goat in two I mean that would be difficult enough for me let alone a lion trying to tear a lion in two and then I've seen pictures where it shows um, it, it shows Samson where he's got the mouth of the lion one hand on the bottom and one hand on the top and he's like pulling the you know disjointing the mouth and everything, but the word actually says that he tore it in two. So he was strong. When that power of the Lord came on him, he was so strong. And the story is that this young woman that was betrothed to him, it ends up that there's a riddle and um, she begs him to tell her the meaning of the riddle and he ends up doing that and then the Philistines say we have the answer and he has to go as payment and get coats for them and so forth and just he gets himself into trouble a lot by just you know not following what God tells him to do and it says uh, there was another time that Samson was taking revenge on the Philistines and he caught 
300 foxes, and they make this sound so easy. 300 foxes took torches and turned the foxes tail to tail, put a torch in between their tails, and then to get revenge, he let them go in these fields of grain that the Philistines had. He wanted to get revenge. So I'm thinking, to catch 300 foxes, I want, you know, did he trap them? What, how would he do that? And then, I mean, I've never had to deal with foxes, but I would imagine if you lift them up by the tail, they're going to be trying to scratch and bite you, and he's putting two together by the tails and putting a lit torch there. It's like, wow, God had to be with him to do those kind of feats. So he gets 300 foxes, takes them, puts two together, so you'd end up with 150 pairs of foxes, sets a lit torch somehow in between their tails that he's got them bound together, and lets them run through these fields of grain of the Philistines to destroy and to get back at the Philistines. Well, they were not happy, you know, when that happened, burning their, burning their grain and so forth, caught on fire. And it said that he, he ran away then, and the Philistines came after him, in revenge, and it says his own people went to talk to him and say, you know, come on, just, you know, come on, let's just get this worked out. And they end up binding his hands and giving him to the Philistines. Well, it said that rope just was as though it had been burned and weak, and he just snapped it right off. So he got away from the Philistines. It's like, wow, you know, wow. But I guess the whole point with, with Samson, it was just sad because he did these, these exploits, but he was supposed to be using that for his people you know, and for God. And instead, he'd get himself in these messes and then get himself out. God was there with him. And another time, another time, and I thought, oh my goodness. Um, and that where it says the ropes broke off of him was Judges 15, 14. And then it goes on and it tells that um, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and took it, and with it struck down a thousand Philistine men who had come after him. So I was reading that it had to be a fresh jawbone because I remember I grew up on a farm and there would be some bones maybe of you know, something that died and they get bleached out by the sun and the weather and they are very brittle. So you could, as kids, we'd pick them up and be fighting, and, I mean, they would break and so forth. So this is the fresh jawbone of a donkey. must have just died or something, and he gets that so that it's strong, and he strikes down a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. I mean, God was definitely with him. And after he got done fighting, he thirsted, and it says he cried out to God, and he said, I need water, I need water. And so God made a little, there was a little indent in the, in the ground and God filled it up, bubbled up water so that he could refresh himself. You know, God loved him and wanted him to be used for the people, but again, he just kept, you know, missing it. So he refreshes himself with that water. Then in Judges 16, Samson goes to town, and it says he visits a prostitute. You know, come on, Samson. I mean, I just, it's like, you know, 
And he visits a prostitute. Well, the men of the town find out he's there, and they lock the gates. And gates at that time were not like gates we have today. They were big gates, heavy gates. So the men decide, the Philistines, we're going to lock the gates, we're going to trap them, we're going to get them. They did that. They locked the gates. Well, Samson, I don't know if it, uh, the Spirit of God woke him up, but it said it was like midnight, and he leaves the prostitute's house, and he goes out to where the gates are, and this is what I read was that um, the gates were wood covered in brass, often weighed anywhere between three and 5,000 pounds. They were 10 feet high, 9 feet wide, and about feet, 3 feet thick. And this is based on city gates that they have found from that period in other cities. These were heavy. And what does Samson do? They're trying to trap him. They lock the city gates. He pulls the gates out of the walls, carries these gates that weighed anywhere from three to 5,000 pounds, carried them 37 miles, mostly uphill. So you know this was God's power on this man. And it says, he set the doors down, still locked, and left them there. You know, like, ha, come get your gates. And then we go on, we know the story of Delilah. She was, you know, his downfall. And the Philistine men told her they would pay her if she could, you know, get the secret of his strength. Find out the secret. And so he was enamored with Delilah. And he would go to see Delilah. And it said numerous times he would fall asleep with his head on her lap, on her knees, so forth. And she would be asking him, you know, probably twirling his hair, tell me the secret of your strength. And you can just see it. You know, and he would tell her something, but it wasn't the truth until finally it said she just kept at him and at him and at him. And probably, you know, you don't really love me if you don't tell me. And so he told her, he told her the strength was in his hair. And it wasn't that he hadn't cut his hair and that his strength, the secret of his strength was not cutting his hair because of the vow as a Nazarite. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, the hair had power. It was in that vow to God not to cut it. But he tells her, and it said, he must have been a sound sleeper because it says that she motions for a man to come in while he's sleeping on her knees and cut his, cut his hair. And what I read, that there were seven large um, groups of hair that he had. Like, I don't know if it was curly and twisted together, or you've seen pictures of uh, some of the, the Jews today that they have the tendrils, and you know what I mean? And if it was something like that, but they said there were seven of those type locks. And this, you know, he goes to sleep on her knees, and she tells this fellow to come in, cut his hair, which that was where his strength was at, from, from God at the time. And so he was taken captive. And sadly, his eyes were gouged out, and he was made a slave grinding grain. And then it goes on, it tells um, about a celebration that Samson was brought out to, and he was going to be the entertainment. You know, 
know, make fun of him and, and that kind of thing. And that a little boy leads him out into this, this area. And it, there were two posts that he asked the little boy to please put his hands on. And from what I was reading, the people were sitting in some type of almost like an upper deck type thing, and these posts were supporting. And they were just making fun of him and just, you know, just whatever they were saying and so forth, you know. And so he asked the boy to put his hands there, and he, he asked God, he said, Samson called out to the Lord, Lord God, remember me, I pray, and please strengthen me just this once, God, so that I may get full revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And he pushed on those two columns, and it says the building roof where these people were, you know, collapsed, and that he killed more at his death than he had killed in his entire life. But, you know, it's sad because there was such promise in him. And God was faithful. I mean, he would give him that strength various occasions when he needed, but it could have been so much better used. It's kind of an example to us, you know. God can gift someone. And I've seen people, and I know you have, so gifted, and then they get off track, or they just, you know, it's all about them, and they just get off track, and, and it's used for the wrong purpose, and pretty soon you don't even hear of them anymore. You know, and it's it's sad. Samson, Samson is a sad story. I mean, he, the things he did were for God's glory, but so much of it, you know, he he went for the wrong women and and like the prostitute and so forth and so on, and it ends up just a very sad story. But yet, you know, God used him, and it said that he killed more people at his death than he killed all during his life. So you know, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. And there are more people in Judges that you can read about. And they so often would get the power of God to rule for a certain time, and then they would get off track and, you know, start doing things for themselves, and God would take away that power, and they ended up very similar to Samson in in that they could have done so much more, and they just died in such, you know, such um, such sin, not not doing what God, you know, could have used them for. Well, I want to go on from from Judges, and where Holy Spirit led me was just to show you these people that, you know, the Spirit came upon them and the mighty things they did. And we've got the Spirit all the time. Oh my goodness, you know? And uh, who I want to talk about next are David's mighty men. And it's First Chronicles 11 that pretty much is, is the chapter that tells about a lot of their, their feats and his mighty men of valor that he surrounded himself with. And First Chronicles 11.10 says, Now these are the heads of mighty men whom David had, who strengthened him in his kingdom. And uh, then verse 11 says, these make up the number of the mighty men who fought for David, and it starts naming them. And the, the first three, there were three men that were considered um, like his three, you know, mighty men of, of God, mighty warriors. And then there was another group, and there was another group, and so forth. But these top three men were Jashabim, Eleazar, and Shammah. And Jashabim, again, 
you know, it says the son of Hakmoni, he was the head of the 30, which the 30 men, when you go into First Chronicles, it'll list the 30 men by name and some of their feats and so forth and so on. He was the head of them, but he was part of this top three. It says he lifted his spear in triumph over 300 slain at one time. And there's a little confusion. It was, I won't say confusion. That's not what. But Second Samuel 23 says, same man, but he killed 800. So I don't know if it's uh, 300 or 800. Uh, God knows. And maybe whoever was writing, you know, um, Second uh, Samuel got the number wrong. Maybe they got it right. And maybe this in First Chronicles is incorrect. But it lists him twice and says, maybe it's two different times. But it says he lifted his spear in triumph over 300 slain at one time. And then the Second Samuel says he killed 800. I mean, even so, a spear killing 300 people with a spear. And I'm thinking, we've all seen movies and some of the Bible movies and things and these long spears. And to kill somebody, I mean, you just don't, you know, tap them and pull it away. I mean, you got to stick them. And so then you got to get that thing back out and do that for 300 men? I mean, it, it just is amazing how God's spirit was on these mighty men. So that's Jashabim. The next is Eleazar. And I like it, the son of Dodai, the Ahohite, who was among the three mighty men. These are called the three mighty men of David. And it says, the Philistines had gathered for battle in a field full of barley. And everyone fled but Eleazar. And he stood his ground in the middle of the field, defended it, killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. And it said that the sword was cleaved to his hand. He fought so many men that it just, I read an account that said when something's cleaved to you, it's almost like it becomes part of you. I mean, they had to like peel his fingers off of that sword because he had held it and just used it, you know, so much. So that was another one of the mighty men. The next one was Shama, and he defended against the Philistines, a plot of lentils. I think, wow, you know, a plot of lentils. And it says, he slew many, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And these three men, Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shammah, are the three men that David had asked at one point, when I think they were still in the caves, he was longing for water from the well in Bethlehem. And these three men, even though Bethlehem at that time was surrounded by Philistines, they go to the well and get water and take it back to David. And it so moved David that they had put their lives on the line to get him water. He said he couldn't drink it. He poured it out as an offering to God. That he just, it was so sacred and so, so hallowed that they had done that. They could have been killed to get him water. They just poured it out, or David poured it out. And David said in 1 Chronicles eleven nineteen, Far be it from me before my God to do this. Should I drink the lifeblood of these men who put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it, and he offered it out as a sacrifice to God. 
So again, here's just three of these mighty men of David that you look at these. The one killed 300 or could have been 800. The other one, it doesn't say the number, but he battled the Philistines and the sword was just like cleaved to his hand. And then this Shama, it says he fought in a plot of lentils and slew many. So it's like, I always love it because, you know, the Bible gives us details that it's like, we didn't have to know that, that he's in a plot of lentils, you know, but they do. I mean, it's like the word, it wants you to get the idea. Just picture that in your mind, a field of lentils, and he's fighting all these enemies. You know, just, just God is so good. God is so good. Then more of the mighty men, Abishai, he was a nephew of David, the brother of Joab, who was another nephew. David and Joab was David's commander of his army. And it says that Abishai lifted his spear in triumph over 300 slain. And I, I thought, okay, he lifted his spear. A Bible spear weighed anywhere between five and a half to 13 pounds and was six to eight feet long is what I found out. So here you have a man that's slaying 300. I mean, that's could be anywhere five and a half to 13 pounds. Even if it was five and a half pounds after a couple, I'd be like, you know, you'd be tired out. But he, he, he slew 300, and it was six to eight feet long. Not like some little tiny knife that you're, it's a big old long spear. I mean, it's just amazing. But again, the spirit of God came on him, this supernatural strength that they got. And then Amasai. It says, many men from the different tribes came to David saying they wanted to join him. And First Chronicles 12, 18 says, then the spirit of God came upon Amasai, the captain of the officers. Other translations say he was chief of the 30. And he said, we are for you, David, and with you, son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to the one helping you, for your God helps you. And this man, Amasai, helped rally the men to David to go out and fight. So again, it says, the Spirit of God came upon Amasai for that time to speak out that, those words of encouragement to the men and to David. And the last one is my absolute favorite. I thought, Lord, I know when we get to heaven, we always think, oh, I want to meet this one and that one, and we're going to be so in awe, you know, of Jesus Christ, that these things, you know, but I'm, I don't know, we're going to be there for eternity, so I'm hoping, I have a list of who I want to meet, and a lot of mine, I mean, yes, you know, Paul and, and Abraham, and, but I have a lot of these that did, they're mentioned, but they're not like the greatest in the Bible, but I want to meet these people, and this fellow, I want to meet him. He is like one of my absolute favorites. His name is Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. And First Chronicles 11.22 says that his name is a combination of two words, Yahweh and, and I believe it's Bana. And it means built by God. Benaiah was built by God. He became one of David's bodyguards. And he also was in charge of, uh, there were mercenaries that fought for David. He was also in charge of all these mercenaries. And he lived a long life because he fought for David. And then he also went on to be with, with uh, Solomon 
David's son after David passed away. Benaiah was there. But the, it just like in one little paragraph, it says, he became David's bodyguard. He was the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds, meaning his father. And I looked up Kabzeel. It says it was the most remote city of Judah, located in southern Judah on the board, border of Edom. That's where he came from. So his father was also a mighty man. And it goes on to say about Benaiah, it says he killed two mighty, fierce like a lion, Moabite warriors. Just real routine, you know, he just, he killed these guys, fierce warriors. He killed an Egyptian man of great stature, five cubits or seven and a half feet tall. And it says in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like a weaver's beam. So, of course, you know, i got to check weaver's beam. So it says the typical weaver's beam was five feet long and two and a half to three inches thick. So that's his spear. You're talking a pretty hefty spear. So what does it say? It, it says um, Benaiah fought him, and he killed him. And in the hand was the Egyptian's spear, like a weaver's beam. And it says Benaiah went down to him with a staff, which, you know, uh, uh, you've seen like a shepherd's staff, and it said they can either have the crook on the end or not. It might just be a plain, you know, uh, stick. So that's what he went down to meet this seven and a half foot tall Egyptian with this huge, you know, spear. And it says he wrestled the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Just like, eh, you know, that's what he did. Because the Spirit of God came on him. That Spirit of God, that power, that anointing. But just like so routine. And then it says the best one yet. Benaiah went down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. I remember once, this was years ago, I preached an entire sermon on that. Because there's so rich. There's so much in that. He went down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day, and he killed the lion. Now, an average uh, weight of a male lion, anywhere between what I was reading, 450 to 500 pounds, and if it's a female, 350, you know, maybe 400. Even if it's a, a baby lion, I mean, I'm, it didn't say a cub, it said a lion, so it's probably a good-sized lion. He went down into a pit with a lion on a snowy day. So here you've got a pit, and I was reading, they would often dig pits to capture some of these wild animals if they were attacking the sheep, the cattle, whatever they might have. So to jump down in that pit with that animal, a lion, and it, you know, and then to kill the lion, it doesn't give us any details, it just says, he went down into the pit with a lion on a snowy day. It doesn't say he had a sword. It doesn't say he had, you know, it doesn't say. But he killed the lion. It's like amazing, amazing. And it says it's one of the most obscure, yet one of the most courageous acts recorded in Scripture. So he was put in charge of David's bodyguard. Like, yeah, yes, you know. And... I just, I get it, I just, I'm sorry, it's just me. I chuckle because I'm thinking, can you see this? David's got a stack of resumes. He needs a bodyguard. 
He's going through. He's going through. And he sees one graduated from the University of Jerusalem, got all these degrees and studied this and that, and he's like, no, no. Finds another one, was an intern with a palace guard. No, no. Another one, I worked for Brink's armored chariots. And he comes to Benea's. I killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Yes, sirree, that's who I want, being one of my mighty men. Hallelujah. So the whole point of this, when I was praying about it, was that we have the spirit in unlimited measure. As we tap in, God just keeps, you know, wanting to give us as we're, we're, you know, due diligent in what he gives us, then we say, more, Lord. And, he'll, you know, he's faithful. And here you've got these men that lived centuries ago that only had the Spirit in part, and they did great deeds. But what should we be doing? I'm not saying, you know, go out and kill the lion or so forth. Get down in a pit, David, with a lion, you know. But, you know, we should really be doing some mighty things for the kingdom. And I look back on my, you know, my own life, and I think, how many risks that I didn't take or opportunities that I didn't seize and dreams that I didn't pursue. And I'm like, no more, you know, no more. What's Jesus say? John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these because I'm going to my father. He lives in us. And not that he wants us to go out and it's a different time and age and so forth to wrestle lions and and so forth, you know, and fight giants and all this, but there's giants in this day and age that we really need to slay in his name. And I think for all of us, stop running away from what scares you and start chasing the God-ordained opportunities that cross your path. Unleash the lion changer, uh, chaser in each one of you. You know, let's take the risk knowing God is always with us. Holy Spirit lives in in us, doesn't just settle on us for a time like these people. He's with us all the time. You know, conquer your fears. Accept that anointing. Chase the lion, whatever it is in your life, and know that he's got you, you know, strategically, strategically placed right where he wants you. There's such opportunity today. So, you know, accept that anointing, chase that lion, jump into the pit, Watch God's kingdom come in amazing ways to your life and to those around you. I mean, we are living with Holy Spirit all the time, and these people only had a measure when they needed it. We needed him, and, you know, he's with us all the time. What we should be doing for the kingdom. I look at my own life, and I think, oh, my there was an opportunity missed, but I don't dwell on it because there's more opportunities and greater opportunities for each and every one of us. So, you know, just keep these people in mind. I love to go back and just study them because it encourages me. They only had the spirit in portion. We've got the spirit all the time to go out and lay hands on the sick and claim that land, you know, claim it for your own and you go into Walmart, you go wherever it is, you claim it, and God will bring people across your path. The grocery store, I have prayed with more people over 
looking at tomatoes and like, well, do you think? And seriously, uh, it's like produce for some reason. And it's like, well, what is, somebody will ask me, well, what do you think of this one? Oh, well, and then it just, well, my husband usually does the shopping, but he's ill. Hello, opportunity. So just keep your ears open, your eyes open. And just like these examples of these mighty men, that's wonderful and awesome. But we have the spirit all the time, 24-7. Hallelujah, huh? Does that not set your, you know, your, what's the old expression? You know, if you aren't, like, excited about that, your wood is wet. That's all I got to say. Your wood is wet if that doesn't excite you. Hallelujah. 